Hello, this is Pastor Keeker. I'm the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Clinton, Missouri, and this is the seventh class of a 12-week class that I'm currently teaching on a Lutheran theology of worship. In particular, now we are at the point in the class where we are focusing on the service of the sacrament or Holy Communion and the gifts that the Lord so generously pours out to us in this sacrament. Thank you for joining us. Uh, May God bless you and the Lord be with you always. Okay, well, our psalm this morning is going to be Psalm uh, Psalm 25 in church, but I'm throwing you a little bit of a curveball this morning um, with Psalm 84. <clears throat> and, you know, this is the psalm, uh, the, familiar, the familiar verse to many of us from this psalm is, um, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And um, as I was reflecting on those verses this morning and the prayers that followed, which I'm going to open our class up with because they definitely struck a chord with me, um, the, what those verses do is they point us to the concept of time, right? That it's better to spend one day, even a brief moment, even a second where uh, with the Lord then a thousand seconds or a thousand days or a thousand years or the rest of my life anywhere else and that prayer it can only be a prayer of faith because when I look at my life I so often don't live up to that right Whenever I go about my day and I see something that is not of the Lord, my sinful flesh would rather be a part of that than even a second with the Lord. And so what I love about about Psalm 84 is is it points us to this concept of time. Um, It's better to spend one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And... As we reflect on time, there's, there's the reality for the Christian is that there is always the past, the present, and the future. And for the Christian, what's our past? The cross, right? That when Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross on Good Friday, he saved me. Poor, wretched, sinful man that I am. What's our present? The cross. Right, I live under the cross. I live under that forgiveness from Him. And what's our future? The cross, right? The last day. And so the collects after Psalm 84 that I was given this morning to pray, um, they point to that sort of time reference too. Uh, listen for it about the cross and the past and the present now and, and the last day and the future that awaits us. Um, so enough, enough jibber jabber. Psalm 84, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 8 through 12, followed by two prayers um, of the church. The Lord be with you. 
Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the, to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, your time has come. For you have traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover from death to life. Help us today to live, knowing that the time of our redemption is at hand, as you continue to dwell among us at the feast of your very body and blood, a foretaste of the feast to come. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, Today, all Christianity celebrates the day on which you rose from the dead. You who are the light, come to light in the darkness. Let the sun of your mercy rise upon all the services of your people. Grant that your word may be rightly preached with power from the Holy Spirit and without fear of those who would oppose it. Bring about true repentance in all who are yours and fill them with the holy faith, which is the salvation of their souls. Listen favorably to all our prayers and bring them before the Father for the sake of your holy wounds. O merciful Lord, where you in the mystery of the sacrament of your body and blood make an entrance among your people, there grant that all the faithful may bow in holy fear and in humility before you, and that all whom you yourself feed may receive the sacred gift, not impenitently to their judgment, but as a medicine of eternal life. Look not upon the sins that we commit against you today and bring to nothing all the plans of the evil foe. Let the last day come soon so that we, released from all strife, may behold you with all saints and angels face to face and sing our praises to you better than we are now able to. Amen. Yes, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Luke 22. Let's pick up in Luke 22. Last week we were in Exodus chapter 12, the whole class, and I, I did it again. I took the class all the way up to like past church time, I think, last week. So we can't, we can't do that. And I know when I say we, I'm just telling myself I can't do that. I can't go to 9:58. It makes us all late. Um, then what? Bergman time? Uh, yeah, I was thinking Guatemala time, too. You know, church is around 10-ish. You know. Show up when you show up. From what I understand, that's the way Amigo de Cristos operate. Probably so, in uh, Sedalia. I, yeah, like, uh, well, we've got that time, but yeah, when people are there... That's Come and go, yeah. Couple, we'll be here a couple hours worshiping. 
Um, so last week we were in Exodus 12 and we were looking at the Passover lamb and we're going to pick back up on um, the possible connections. Um, are there connections between Exodus 12 and when Jesus institutes the supper, which of course he institutes it when? On the night of the Passover. So um, let's read Luke 22, 7 through 23. And... And then um, I have a brief video to show you this morning as well, which I will need to find a way to tag it into the podcast somehow, some way. Okay, Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So what day is this day? It's the day the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed. Jesus sends Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. So Jesus is desiring to celebrate this Passover meal, the same meal that we just took a lot of time looking at last week in Exodus 12. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Oh, <laughs> you see, Jesus is speaking with the same voice of God, right? He, what did God say to the Israelites last week? kill a lamb, right? Why? We don't know yet. Put its blood on your doorposts. Why? You don't know yet. Eat its flesh at night. Why? We don't know yet. God just tells you and you go, right? So he's tell- So Jesus is telling the disciples, go, prepare the Passover for us. And it's like, where? You know, like, where are we going? Like, Here, let me explain it to you, right? Behold, when you've entered a city, a man, he's already, he's already got this all set up, right? Jesus has already, he's already got it all planned. He's, he's already got this man where he needs him to be. He's already got the upper room set in his mind. He knows where he's going. Um, and man, that sometimes life feels that way. It's like, I'm, we're in the shoes of the disciples. It's like, wh- what is going on? I have no idea. Can you fill me in on a few more details, please, right? It is faith. It's always faith, right? So the same way God speaks to Abraham, go, Abram. And he just starts going, right? And then, and then God tells him about the promises. So uh, again, the same way Jesus, um, Jesus deals with us too. It's always by faith. So he tells them to go. So are they going? You betcha. But they need to know where they're going. So he says to them, when you enter a city, the city, now he's talking about Jerusalem, of course, um, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room <laughs> furnished. You see it? You know, it's like they're only asking the question for the sake of the person. Jesus already knows where the room's going to be, right? Go ask them where we should celebrate the meal. Then he'll tell you it's in this upper room, a guest room, right? right? It's a room furnished. Prepare it there. And so they went, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. Oh, where was that? I was reading this morning. I was reading something this morning where Jesus, this might be in my prayers. 
Yeah, look at John 7. This is interesting. It just came to my mind. Um, we're talking about the concept of time here. And, and Jesus has just said in Luke that I've earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you. But look at John 7. This, this struck me too this morning uh, as I'm reading the psalm and as I'm thinking about time. And it's better to spend one day in the court in the Lord's house than a thousand elsewhere. Um, John 7, like, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so another festival, feast. His brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it works, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, so what's the significance here in Luke 22? What's Jesus saying when he says, um, I've desired, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. My time has come. His time has come. This is the same, the same thing he says to his mother, the very first miracle in John, right? And, and, and Mary's pressing him to take care of the situation. And Jesus says to his mom, what? It's not my time yet. What is his time, right? Because for us, it's always time, Jesus says. It's always time for you. But for me, there's an appointed time. What is it? He, now he's saying it's, it's time. And so uh, as the ears of the disciples who are always wondering, when is it time? When is it time? What, why does he keep talking about his time's not yet come? When is that? Our ears should be perking up because now he's saying, I've earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you. My time has come. Because he, his, he came to die. Yes. So that's, the time. that's right. The cross. Um, and so... I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17. So then his time has come. This is what he does. He takes a cup. When he had given thanks, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten. Now, that's going to be an important phrase in the video that I'm going to show you. So I'm just going to flag it right now. Uh, Verse 20. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Okay, so last week we left off in Exodus, and we were kind of wrestling with this question of, uh, you know, why does, God, why does God always seem to be drawing uh, to his, uh, why does he always seem to be talking to his people about food? First thing he says to Adam, don't eat this, eat this. Um, then in Exodus, he tells them to eat lamb. 
Then in Exodus, that's Exodus 12. Exodus 16, he rains down heavenly manna, right? Um, and here Jesus is, oh, and then in Exodus 24, the, the, is, the chief men, they, they go up on to the top of the mountain and God is there and, and they behold God and they eat and they drink. And now here Jesus is sitting with people around a table throughout his ministry, eating with them, drinking with them. And in his last testament, shouldn't surprise us that he uses food, right? He's wanting you to behold him and eat and drink with him. And we were considering how it is just like our God to desire to dwell with us, right? He desires to draw near to us. Um, and he's desiring to bring us all to where? To himself. Um, and the time that is fulfilled since the beginning of time is his, his cross, right? So what's the connection between Exodus 12 and and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Well, this is uh, Pastor Brian Wolf Mueller. He um, he's written a few books, um, and he was the speaker at last year's family and marriage conference in Cole Camp. He's a wonderful pastor. I think he serves a church. I think he's in. I'm not. I'm not sure where he is, but he's he's got a brilliant mind. Um, he grew up uh, in an evangelical background. He was an adult convert to Lutheranism. Um, but he has, a, he has some great shows, um, some great videos, um, and this sort of outlet for his ministry seems to be doing really well and reaching a lot of people. And this is one video that he recently did. Well, it was back in 2019. But he, someone actually sends in the question, What's the connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper? And I love his answer, so I wanted to share that with you this morning. Here's a question about the connection between the sacrament of the altar and the history of the Passover. Thanks for this one. All right, we're moving on. We got a lot of questions. We're going to see how many we can cover. This one uh, comes from. If you, it says if you could use, you can use this, but don't please don't use my name. So it says, "Hello, Pastor Wolfmuller." My friend who's a lifelong Lutheran, and I joke that I'm an LIT, Lutheran in training. I'm now an adult catechesis. I'm eager to learn as much as I can about God and the Bible from the Lutheran perspective. I'm writing because I have a question or suggestion for a topic of discussion, and because I'd like to tell you that your videos and audio resources have really helped me a lot. I'm a lifelong Pentecostal, going Lutheran, and it's been a very difficult road so far. She continues, currently I'm... I'm, I'm trying to tackle the sacrament of the altar, and I think it would be really cool to hear about the history of the Passover and how those customs were replaced by what Jesus did on the cross and how the customs are translated now in the sacrament of the altar, piece by piece. Uh, thanks for all the help. Uh, I hope to learn more about it. Sincerely, uh, your uh, listener. So thank you. This is a, now, this is a great question. And how much time do we have, Ian? This is a great question to take up, and it's, and it's one of common theological reflection. That people want to know, what is the connection between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper? Now, there's a lot there, so let's start this way. We want to remember what the Passover was. In the Old Testament, as the Lord was rescuing his people from Egypt, before he rescued them from Egypt, he, he gave, he, there, was the, there was the nine plagues, and just on the cusp, of the Lord bringing the people out. He says, I'm going to put in place 
a special feast called the Passover. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, and I want you to kill the lamb, and I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to paint it on your doorposts, on the top of the door, and going down along the side, and then roast the lamb and cook it. And there's a bunch of other stuff that he wants. I want you to make unleavened bread, not leavened bread. I don't want there to be any yeast in the house. Oh, he gave The Lord gave them all these uh, these instructions. And he says, and when I come through the camp, I'll, I'll see the blood. When I come through the village or the city, I'll see the blood, and I'll pass over the doorpost, and I won't kill the firstborn. That's why it's called the Passover. And the Lord said, when, when I've rescued you from Egypt, I want you to do this Every year, it's, I think it's on the 15th of Nisan, the Jewish month, that every year they're supposed to do this as a perpetual memorial. And so that becomes the Passover feast, one of the major feasts of the seven major feasts of the, of the Jewish tradition. That's really quite wonderful to recognize that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he does it on the night of the Passover. They go and they celebrate the Passover in the upper room, and Jesus made preparations so that so that, that, that this meal was happening on the same day that the, all the Jewish people all over the world were eating the Passover meal. Now, one parallel to note there before we dig in a little bit deeper, and that is this, is that just like in the Exodus, the Lord instituted the Passover feast before the event that the Passover was to remember had even happened, so in the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives us his body and his blood before the giving of his body and blood on the cross had happened. But it's amazing that the Lord puts the Passover meal in place so that they could remember what the Lord does when he rescued them, when he haven't even rescued them. It's like putting in the, it's like, uh, it, it's like, it's like celebrating a birthday before the person's even born. It's really quite wonderful. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, they were eating the Passover, and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now this has led to a lot, a lot, a lot of theological discussion. All the old theologians like to talk about this, about what part of the Passover celebration is, is being recognized when Jesus is giving out the Lord's Supper. And I, I think that for a handful of reasons, this is a bit of a wrong question. So, so, for example, uh, even though it says uh, in Matthew and in Mark, it says while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. It, it's in, when he takes up the cup, it, he wants to make a clean break from the celebration of the Passover and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So it, it'll say, for example, in Luke 22, verse 20, it says, after they had supped, Jesus took the cup. So that there's a distinction between the eating of the Passover and the, and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. In fact, the, just the language that Jesus uses when he gives them the cup, he says, this is the cup of the New Testament. The Old Testament was really grabbed, I mean, it was bound up in the celebration of the Passover. But Jesus says, I'm giving you a New Testament now. And in Hebrews 8, uh, teaches us that when Jesus says New Testament, that the Old Testament has become obsolete and has faded away. Another key, uh, chief and key key. <laughs> Another key difference is that when it comes to the Passover, Jesus says, do this often in remembrance of me. Whereas the Passover was to be celebrated was to be celebrated yearly. And, and maybe one of the more things to think about in this line is that if Jesus was for example, he wanted to just take up the symbol of the Passover and transfer it to the Lord's Supper. Instead of taking the bread, he would have taken the lamb. He would have said, this is my body. 
Because the Lamb of the Passover was preaching the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I mean, what, what, what better, more clear preaching of the gospel is there in the Old Testament? That the Lamb will be sacrificed and His blood will be the thing that rescues us from death. Just absolutely stunning. And so that Passover was preaching the death of the Lamb to come. But now that the Lamb has come, now that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has been sacrificed, His blood has been spilled, now it just needs to be distributed. So Jesus says, this is the cup of the New Testament, which is in my blood, uh, which is for you for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe a couple more notes since we're in the region here, and that is to say that when the text says this is the New Testament, almost every single mm, modern English version says covenant. You could read the New King James or the ESV or the NIV or the uh, NRSV or any, any of them. They almost all say covenant. The King James, though, is right here when it says testament. Now, what's the difference between a covenant and a testament? Well, this is outlined for us in Hebrews, but a covenant goes until the person who made the covenant dies. Marriage, for example, is a covenant. Till death has to part. And then the covenant is broken. A testament doesn't start until the person dies, like a will. So the covenant goes until the death, and the, and the testament starts at death. That's why we talk about the Old Covenant and the New Testament. The Old Covenant God made with Abraham, and it doesn't end until God dies. The New Testament, that's Jesus giving out the benefits of his death to all those who would benefit by it. Maybe, maybe one more thing, since we're on the topic here, and, and, we're, and we're talking about it. When it comes to the difference between, for example, the Pentecostal view of the Lord's Supper and the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper, it's really quite wonderful. The Lutherans come along and say, when Jesus says, this is my body, we say... All right. Sounds good. I don't know how it's your body, but if you say it, it's going to be your body. And when he says, this is the cup of the New Testament poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, we say, all right. The Lord's Supper gives the forgiveness of sins. It delivers that promised forgiveness to us. And we, it's our job not to understand it, but to rejoice in it. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, there, that's for you. Okay. Um. Pastor Wolf Mueller brought up a uh, letter in the New Testament a couple of times. He brought up Hebrews. So let's turn to Hebrews. And we're going to look at this language of Hebrews starting in chapter 7. And we're going to con continue the discussion about uh, connection here between the Passover lamb and uh, what Jesus has come to do for us. Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 in the next 20 minutes. Katrina is laughing. We can do it. I have a question. Yes, Tina. Uh -huh. When it says, I can't pronounce his name, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah. How come he is with no father or mother and no beginning or end? Well, he's... Uh, he's uh, he prefigures Christ. So um, we meet Melchizedek in Genesis 14. 14. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I was getting there. I was like, not 10. Abram's 12. It's after he meets Abram. Thanks, Barb. 14. I didn't even have to Google it. I just, bar just Barb can yeah. come in. Uh, Genesis 14. Let's look at that. Um, and this is a great point that you, that, um, it's fitting that we look at Melchizedek for at least a little bit, actually, because of, of what Melchizedek brings, right? Um, 
Now, uh, Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamor, the kings of who were with him, the king of Sodom, who went out to meet him. So this is Abram, Abraham, or Abram is the, is the pronoun here, him. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out what? Oh, that's interesting. He brings out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Okay, so this is where we meet Melchizedek. Um, as quickly as he enters the story, quickly he leaves. But uh, this priest of God Most High brings bread and wine, and he blesses Abram. Um, and Abram responds by giving him a tenth. That's where the idea of a tithe comes from, uh, of everything. And then... I'd, might want to fact check me on this, but I don't believe we hear anything else about Melchizedek until Hebrews. It might be a I, psalm about him. I, I was going to say, I thought there was some place. Barb? There is a psalm. 110. Psalm 110. Okay, I'm like, there might, I was thinking, psalm. Okay. Psalm 110, Barb for the win. Yeah. Psalm 110, he comes back up. Let's look at that. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. Okay. Um, Melchizedek, is, it's just a Hebrew word for uh, king of righteousness, Melchizedek. King of righteousness, priest of righteousness. I have to look at that. Um, so Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is how the letter to the Hebrews begins with, uh, with quoting Psalm 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, on the dew, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, he will not change his mind, that you are a priest forever after the order of who? Melchizedek. Um, not Jewish, right? right. Uh, in the Levitical law, how could you be a priest? Who were the only ones allowed to be priests? Levites, Levites right? Sons of Aaron, sons of Levi. They were priests. But yet there's this priest in the Old Testament, the first one actually, and he is not from that genealogy. Yes, Timothy. Yeah, in the wilderness, God establishes the, the Levitical priesthood. Yeah, so we get that in Leviticus. Where, where do the priests continue at the time that Abraham is there? 
8x because we're talking about before the Exodus, right? Yeah, Paul has some words on this, right? There's 440 years before the law is given, which the law is given on Mount Sinai. Right. Abram predates that. So um, was, was there really this law, or had God placed <laughs> this restriction, so to speak? Another discussion for another time. We're, we're, we gotta go to Galatians now. And I've gotta go practice music. <laughs> oh, I see, I see what you do, Timothy. Boom, <laughs> bye. <laughs> um, yeah, Galatians. Yeah, it's how far do we want to chase the Melchizedek rabbit? Um, Paul does bring uh, this up in Galatians, but for now, suffice it to say, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this referring to? Who is the priest in the order of Melchizedek? Jesus Christ. And that is the whole point of Hebrews up to chapter 7, that Jesus Christ is a great high priest He's after the order of Melchizedek. And what does a priest do? What's the priestly duty? One of the main duties of a priest? Sacrifice, right? Sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats. Uh, offer the blood for the sins of the people. So, Hebrews 7. Katrina, you're, you're probably going to be right. Probably not going to get through. Can you hear how easy that comes out of <laughs> okay, Hebrews 7, uh, we're, there it is. Look at verse 17. It is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, so the, writer to the, to the, letter, the writer of the letter of Hebrews is now taking Melchizedek and he is comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. In the same way, he's going to compare the old covenant of the law, the Passover, to the new one. Um, and what was Pastor Wolfmuller's whole point? It is the same in some respects, but this is different. It's different because it is better. It's a better covenant, a better testament. Um, Jesus is the great high priest. He's in the same line as Melchizedek, but he's a better one, right? Uh, someone greater than Moses is here, right? So Psalm, or sorry, Hebrews 7, 22. We'll pick it up here. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Um, now we're going to talk about what makes his covenant better. Why is his covenant better than the covenant of the Old Testament? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. He continues forever. He's risen from the dead, so... Point one, why it's better. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law timothy is not here appoints a son who has been made perfect forever so what makes jesus's covenant better so far well first he's raised from the dead he lives forever 
Uh, all the former priests, they died, their service ended. Jesus's priesthood continues forever. He lives forever. But look at verse 27. This, I think, is really the key from the scriptural witness. What makes Jesus's covenant better is that he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he has done this once and for all when he offered up himself. His covenant is better because his sacrifice is once and it lasts for all time. All time. It doesn't have to be redone. That would be different to a Jewish Old Testament believer. The sacrifice was a continual thing. You continually needed to offer a sacrifice of blood to atone for the sins of the world. One sacrifice didn't cut it for life. I mean, you, had to, there was, you had to keep doing it and keep doing it. And now here comes this high priest. He doesn't sacrifice your sacrificial offerings that you bring. He sacrifices himself. And that sacrifice atones for the sins of all time. One sacrifice. Um, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's the key verse, um, Hebrews 7.27. Let's go to Hebrews 8. He continues the argument that Jesus is the high priest of a better uh, testament. Right? The point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, it's better because there are better promises attached. Um, this is a probably a horrible analogy, but it's just the first one that comes to my mind. When you are shopping for a car, what makes their promises better than someone else's promises? Well, this one has got a 10,000 mile guarantee. This one's got a 100,000 mile guarantee. This one, guaranteed for life. Anything ever goes wrong with it, we'll fix it, no problem. Which one's better? That one. Well, likewise, why, why is Christ's covenant better? What makes it better? And here he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, um, which you could turn to it in the Old Testament or it's right here for us. Um, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says, and here's Jeremiah. I want to make sure it's Jeremiah. Yes. 31. Yes, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. See, the Lord has already promised in the Old Testament he's going to make a new covenant, and it's going to be better. Not like the one of the Passover, not like the one when I delivered you out of Egypt, but a better one. Why so? Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what's the better promise of the new covenant? I will remember their sins no more. Yeah, forgiveness of sins. This is why when Jesus institutes his New Testament, what does he attach to it? What's the promise he attaches to it? Take and drink. This is the blood of the New Testament for what? For the forgiveness of sins. He's fulfilling the Jeremiah 31 covenant. He is, he is enacting a new and better promise, a sacrifice, one sacrifice that atones for the sins of all, once and for all. Hebrews 9. Now, this is where we have... Uh, there is a lot, a lot, a lot in Hebrews 9. Is it really 943? I'm going to begrudgingly stop there. It's 942. Oh, I got one more minute. So now... No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, we'll stop there today. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to take up Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. Katrina was right. Anyone have any questions, um, though, from what we've looked at so far about a better covenant? Forgiveness of sins, remember them no more, but we still go and confess the sins we just committed. Right, because are, we are inventing new sins every day and indulging in them. Because I sin, I need that sin forgiven. Once that sin's forgiven, it's remembered no more. Now, if I was a perfect Christian, I would never need that forgiveness again, right? But because of my sin, I continually, I continually need to go to the place where my new sins are forgiven and remembered no more. By the same one sacrifice that atones for all sins. Yes, forgiveness is there. But as I live, you know, Psalm 84 convicted me this morning. It's better to, to, it's better to spend one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. How I wish that were true for me. It's how, how, often, how often I throw away the moments that I have with the Lord for something of this world and indulge in it. That's a, new, that's a sin that needs to be forgiven. And the only place that that sin can be, be, can be forgiven is by the blood of the Lamb. Um, and once that blood atones for that sin, it is remembered no more. Does that help? Katrina. Yeah. 
Yeah, so a covenant lasts up into death, and then a testament begins, or a will, begins at death and lasts forever, right? This is his last testament. It is what he gives to us being enacted by his death, the time that is fulfilled. And what is it? Take and eat, take and drink. Um, so, uh, so we do. <laughs> it's what he passed on to us. It's, it's the benefits of his cross. He wants to make sure that you receive the benefits, right? Just like, you know, you work, you work 60, 70, 80 years, you amass a cattle farm the size of Missouri, you have all this money, all these gifts. When you pass away, you want to make sure that those gifts get distributed to those who need them, right? That is your last will, your last testament. And Hebrews will say, you don't mess with someone's last will. That's why we have lawyers, right? <laughs> this is their desire. You can't change it, right? Um, this is our Lord's last will. He is distributing the benefits of what he has come to do. Forgiveness of sins. Um, here it is. And we call this a testament. Yes, the whole, yeah, the New Testament. Yeah, right. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, it should be the Old Covenant and the New Testament. Is what he he was clarifying that, um, but yeah, it's. Or it's like original covenant. Yeah. Yeah. Let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll see everyone upstairs. Oh.